the writer of the first letter to Timothy, the reading that Nick did for us just a moment ago, that writer urges his followers to make supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for kings and all in high positions so that, he says, we may live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity which is a passage that kind of reminds me a little bit of that joke from the musical Fiddler on the Roof. Some of you may know this. The rabbi of the town is asked, Rabbi, is there a special blessing for the czar? And the rabbi answers, a blessing for the czar, of course. May God bless and keep the czar far away from us. (laughs) Pray for the people in power so that they do not come knocking on your door. Our earliest ancestors in the faith were not simpletons. They were, they were beleaguered, a beleaguered band of refugees, actually. They were political dissidents who had been hounded by emperors and persecuted by kings. And the writer of First Timothy is writing in a slightly later period now when these, these ne'er-do-wells of the Roman Empire are just beginning to gain a little bit of social standing. And so he warns them, don't make trouble with the people in power. Be nice to them. Pray to them. As their Lord Jesus had told them a couple generations earlier in one of the weirdest, I think actually one of his funniest parables, make friends for yourselves by whatever means possible, dishonest wealth if you must. Start praying for kings if that's what it takes. Well, the crowned heads that I suspect many of us are watching a little more closely these days, of course, are the English royal family. We Episcopalians with our fondness for all things British. Matthew uh, spoke for, for many of us, at least he spoke for me, in his tribute to Queen Elizabeth at Evensong last Sunday. He said, I did not know the Queen personally. I never met her. But I have watched every single episode of The Crown on Netflix. <laughs> so I fancy myself something of an expert, if you don't mind. At my house, we've gone back to watching some of the earlier episodes in the series. And it's amazing to see how these earliest parts of Elizabeth's reign ring with so much resonance now that she's gone. A couple nights ago, my parents and I watched the episode from the first season of The Crown when the new queen, all of 25 years old, starts to figure out what this job is going to be like. She starts to differentiate herself from family and advisors. It's the moment, I think, where she first kind of comes into her own as a leader and as, more to the point, as a woman leader. It happens in a conversation with Winston Churchill, the great, uh, the great premier elder statesman, a man who knew well the art of shrewd political maneuvering. He knew how to manipulate his monarchs to get what he wanted. And we know that Churchill is going to go on to become a really important mentor to the young queen, but to get there, Elizabeth has to show that she knows how to play the game just as well as he does, and actually that she can play it better than he can. Churchill has advised that Elizabeth's coronation should be scheduled for 16 months out. He says, ma'am, this is entirely for your benefit, and she smells a rat, as she should. And she's confused, right? Why is the prime minister trying to delay my coronation for a year and a half? That seems, that seems ridiculous. But she puts it together, and at their next meeting, Elizabeth lays her cards on the table. She says, I know that, you, that your party wants you to resign in favor of a younger man, she tells her shocked prime minister. I also know, she says, that no one will bring up your resignation while you are actively engaged in planning my coronation. So by delaying my investiture, you are in fact, she says, holding on to power. In which case, she says with these wide, innocent eyes, Claire Foy, as Elizabeth plays the moment beautifully, in which case, she says, I would suggest, Prime Minister, that you are somewhat in my debt. (laughs) She plays him like a violin. That's the moment 
where I fall in love with Elizabeth, with her steely courage, with her shrewdness, with this iron fist in a beautifully embroidered velvet glove. Here is a woman who has figured out how to play the game, how to use her dishonest wealth, we might say, her, her family name, her position as queen, which has come to her entirely through an accident of birth and historical circumstance, her wealth, her power, her privilege, and her liabilities too, right? Her youth, her inexperience, her gender, I mean, not to make too fine a point of it, all of it marshaled to the task of making friends, we might say, making friends shrewdly. It's important for her to have a relationship with her prime minister, which is not one of, of, of her being manipulated. So she makes friends with him very shrewdly, exactly as Jesus advises. Do not be stupid about this stuff, he tells his followers. Don't be naive. He says, truly I tell you, the children of this age, the politicians and the lobbyists and the journalists and the business people of this age, they are more shrewd in dealing with one another than are the children of light. He says, you guys are worried about keeping your hands unstained, about keeping yourselves pure. You are missing the larger game here. And then he tells them this weird, unsettling parable. I think he's got his tongue firmly planted in his cheek as he does so. But the, the details of this story actually make a really interesting point, I think. A manager, a guy who manages a, the estate of a large landlord, is about to be fired. It's not clear whether his employer is fair or corrupt. A lot of ink has been spilled by commentators trying to figure out, like, is this a, is this a critique of the first century economic system? We don't really know. The point seems to be that this particular manager who is facing an abrupt end to his paycheck is desperately trying to secure a pension for himself, right? So he cheats. He cheats his master. He calls all of his master's debtors. He reduces what they owe so that we are meant to understand they're going to have pity on him and take him in when his master throws him out on the ear. Make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, they will welcome you into their eternal homes. One, there's, a, there's a gazillion ways to try to figure out what the point of this story is, where Jesus seems to commend dishonesty as a tactic for making friends and influencing people. I think another way of reading it is it's a, it's a funny, clever, interesting, provocative way of saying friendship is actually the thing that matters. And Jesus is clear about this, right? Over and over again in the New Testament, this man who, I mean, famously never seems to have married, who hung around in this... I mean, weird 12-part bromance with these dudes who clearly made a bunch of people uncomfortable, this bromance that kind of set the world on fire, if you like, because after he was gone, they kept doing it. They kept inviting more and more people into the friendship game, which was actually never really a bromance because women were a part of it from the very beginning. It just, a just took the church a longer time to see that because of the ways in which women's voices have been historically, and still are, silenced and dismissed and undercut and shamed. I suspect it was the women of this movement, actually. I suspect it was Mary and Martha and Mary Magdalene and Mary the wife of Clopas and Dorcas and Priscilla and Lydia and Junia, the women who made Christianity what it is today. I think they were the ones who remembered this weird, funny little story about shrewdness and took it to heart. Because my sense is that at least historically, it is often the women of Christianity who have subverted the tools of the master, the tools of empire, money and wealth and violence and power, and have used dishonest wealth built on a domination system in order to make friends. Maybe it was the women of Jesus' circle more than the guys who actually got the point of this very unsettling parable that he tells.
Certainly, I think Queen Elizabeth got it. I can't speak to her personal qualities. I didn't know her. But in the midst of all these tributes that are pouring in, praising her for her familial devotion, her purity of heart, her personal integrity, I want to praise this woman for her shrewdness. I mean, here is a very savvy political operator, a woman in a man's world, who knew how to use both the honest and the dishonest wealth she had inherited in order to do something far more interesting than the generations of men who had preceded her. She's taken a page from Queen Victoria's book, from Elizabeth I. Churchill says it over and over again in the Netflix series, England has usually done best with our queens. That's interesting to think about. And we do her a disservice, I think, when we dismiss her as this nice, gentle, little old lady fit for pouring out tea and chatting about the weather. I mean, here I'm thinking not just about Queen Elizabeth. I didn't know her. Apparently, she really only came alive when you talked about horses and corgis, so I don't know. But there's one thing I think the crown does get right, if not about Elizabeth, then at least about the women of her generation, maybe the women of many generations, women I have known, because I've spent most of my life in church, and women and church have gone together for a long time, and they, the women that I have known, women like Elizabeth, have figured out the art of using dishonest wealth in order to make friendships that last. I've been thinking a lot about another woman that we buried this week, Anne Monroe. Many of you knew her. And lots more of you actually knew her than think you did. All week long, people have been coming up to me in the wake of Anne's funeral. People who saw her picture in the paper or recognized her from the email we sent out, and they were like, oh, she's, she's that lady. She's that kind woman who smiled at me every Sunday, shook my hand, took time to get to know me. She, she did this all over town, right? Like checkers in stores, like all kinds of people are coming up to her family and being like, you don't know this, but I met your mother once, and she kind of changed my life. She looked at you and interacted with you in a way that demonstrated that she actually saw you and that she actually cared. I know that because she did it to me every Sunday at the door when I would greet her and her husband, Dave, and she'd always say, hey, Nathan, how are you? She'd give me a big hug. How are you? And I knew what she meant by that. It was not a casual remark, because I knew that Anne struggled, as many of us do, with a darkness of her own. She knew depression, as I do, as many of us do, and we know that one of the ways that we support one another is through these small but very significant gestures of kindness. When we ask each other, how are you? What we're really saying is, you maybe don't want to talk about anything more than the weather right now, and that's fine. But know that I see you, and know that I love you. And that is enough. That's how Anne and I showed each other that we cared about each other. We shared this particularly aberrant feature of brain chemistry, and so we looked out for one another. And now she's gone, and I miss her. She was a lot more than a sweet little old lady at the door who smiled at you and shook your hand. Because there was nothing sentimental about Anne Monroe, just as there's nothing sentimental about Queen Elizabeth. Anne's grace came from hardship. It came from hard-won acts of forgiveness. And she chose empathy and connection over the far easier road of shutting herself off. Her kindness came from slogging through the muck of life. Hers was a, was a privileged life in many ways, but it was not an easy one. She was a woman of shrewdness, which is a way to say that she was a woman of deep faith. And I think maybe that's all faith is when you get down to it, a certain kind of tenacity, a certain kind of shrewdness. I mean, my grandmothers had it, both of them. It's one of the things that I really admire about them. Their lives were not easy, but they knew how to pray, right? They knew how to focus on what mattered. 
They knew how to build and maintain relationships, often in spite of systems and powers, the ways in which the world worked, the roles to which they were allotted, the ways they were treated, the ways they were seen. These were not sweet little old ladies. These were women of power. These are women of power. They are women of great shrewdness. So I want to reclaim shrewdness, maybe even feminist shrewdness, if you want to go there. I want to reclaim that as one of the cardinal virtues of this faith, right up there with wisdom and humility and meekness and purity of heart and the rest. Maybe we could all stand to be a little more shrewd, which is to say a little more focused on what matters and a little less focused on stuff that just doesn't matter all that much. Jesus seems to indicate that the stuff that matters is always grounded in human relationship, right? It's, it's actually friendship more than it is marriage or romance, even, even more than family. Friendship, time and again, is where Jesus roots this movement of love. And it starts super simple, right? It's kindness, it's compassion, it's mercy, it's gentleness. But you know as well as I do, when you ratchet up the, the volume on that stuff a little bit, when you situate it then in the middle of a, of a busy and complicated marketplace with a lot of competing voices and a whole lot of dishonesty and cheating and violence, sometimes, often, I think, kindness, like reducing somebody's debt so that they can get out of, out of debt slavery, right? Sometimes kindness starts to look on the surface of things like dishonesty. It looks like criminality, maybe even like immorality. But there's a shrewdness deep at the heart of this faith that says, look a second time. What is really going on here? Because maybe what looks like imprudence or dishonesty or malfeasance or crime is actually a deeper kind of mercy. Maybe it's using dishonest wealth in order to make a friend. And maybe that's all that matters in the end. Doesn't matter how you make them, but make them. At the beginning of this morning's service, we prayed, grant us, Lord, not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly. And even now, while we are placed among things that are passing away, a great marketplace of all kinds of stuff, help us to hold fast to those things that shall endure. And according to today's gospel, friendship is that thing. Friendship is the thing that endures. So hold fast to it. It might be the closest thing we know in this life to eternity. I think it's, it's been said, I think it's true. Our friends are the ones who save us. They're the ones who will welcome us into our eternal homes.